1982, Knoxville invited the world to come to a fair. If you want to see what makes the world go round, if you want to have the kind of fun that comes just once, in every lifetime, if you want to see how history is being made in Tennessee, Four decades later, the city is remembering that transformative event. Promoters of the fair claimed history was being made in Tennessee. And on this podcast series, we'll explore some memorable aspects of the fair and its legacy. I'm Ernie Freeberg, a history professor at the University of Tennessee. The department has partnered with WUOT and several community organizations to create this series. And we're glad that you've decided you've got to be here. The 1982 World's Fair. You've got to be there. When Knoxville invited the world to come to a fair in 1982, civic leaders had two goals in mind, one global and one quite local. They promised to take on the world's pressing problem of energy supply, creating an international energy exposition. But they were also energized by the prospect of using the fair as an urban renewal project luring federal dollars to clean up a ragged strip of land in the heart of the city that some locals called Scuffletown and others called Stinky Creek. Knoxville historian Jack Neely. Well, I, th- I think almost everybody in America that was thinking about it was concerned about energy in the 70s, uh, but uh, I think it was an opportunity uh, for people who had been looking at this troublesome part of downtown, which had been uh, it was kind of a post-industrial uh, uh, ruin uh, in some ways the Second Creek Valley. The uh, L&N uh, train station had closed back in 68 and hadn't been used for much since then. And uh, and there were kind of dead factories and things up and down the, the way and uh, just kind of a crumbling wreck between right between downtown and, and UT, the biggest campus in the region. So uh, it was, it, it seemed like a priority to try to do something with this part of the Part of the city. One of the magical qualities of an exposition is what it can do to change the face of its host community. Expo 82 will be no exception. Take a good look at this 77-acre section of Knoxville. Speaking generously, it is now an industrial slum that manages to separate the University of Tennessee from the Central Business District. But why belabor the point? The area's known better days, but its best are being saved for May 1, 1982. So was the fair designed to save the world or to clean up Stinky Creek? One person who has thought a lot about this is Dr. Michael Camp. Growing up in Farragut and attending college at the University of Tennessee, that fairgrounds was just another feature of his hometown. But he gained new perspective on the fair when he began to research the history of urban renewal and wrote a book on energy policy in Appalachia in the 1970s and 80s. His work shows that long before the world came to Knoxville for a fair in 1982, global events were shaping the city and the region. As, uh, as people, as jobs, as uh, consumer spending was moving away from downtown and toward outlying suburban areas, Knoxville's business leaders were very interested by the late 1970s in figuring out a way to reinvigorate what was a declining city center and the World's Fair was the culmination of several decades of efforts to make that happen. You're thinking of it as a downtown revitalization project, whereas I think the, the title of it is that it's an energy exposition, that the focus really is about thinking about 
energy in the future and building Knoxville as a center for energy innovation going into the future. Where did that energy theme come from, if, what, if this, this is really about trying to fix up downtown? Well, I think uh, it started as one thing and then became something else as the, the project evolved. Knoxville's business leaders by the late 1970s were trying to create some kind of event to galvanize downtown redevelopment. They looked at uh, the city of Spokane, Washington, that had just had a World's Fair in 1974, and saw in that a template for one such project that might bring some dollars, might bring some tourism, might bring some federally financed redevelopment, and decided to make a pitch to create an international exposition based around the topic of energy to draw in that uh, federal spending, to draw in that tourist interest, uh, and to draw people to the city. Other cities have had international expositions, large cities, some smaller than Knoxville. And the most successful were those which were based on a timely theme or concept. That's a plus, because Knoxville stands in a unique position at a unique time. Energy is the growth industry of the 80s, just as space was the growth industry of the past 20 years. Um, so it began at a very local level with the mayor's office and uh, downtown business leaders trying to create some kind of international event. And as they did so, they gravitated toward energy as a theme because Knoxville, you know, the economy and society and culture he are heavily centered around energy. So centrally, with the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, with the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, with the Y-12 plant uh, out in Oak Ridge, uh, with partnerships between the university and Tennessee and all of these other entities, uh, and saw uh, energy as a very timely theme that might draw um, attention and funding to the city. Most, if not all, of our hopes for the continuation of our technological growth will be centered on energy, the growth industry of the coming years. And just as the space age spans such complexes as Cape Kennedy and the Houston Space Center, the energy age must also find a home base. For that home base to be Knoxville is more than just idle speculation. It had only been a few years before, in 1973 and 1974, uh, when the U.S. experienced uh, a quite a consumer shock with the 1973 oil embargo, where the short version is that uh, in October 1973, uh, Israel and Egypt were at war uh, over the Sinai Peninsula. The U.S. was covertly supporting Israel in, that, uh, in their war with Egypt, uh, was covertly providing them supplies, but got caught. And so as punishment, some of the oil-producing nations in the region, Kuwait, Libya, Saudi Arabia, and others, instituted a partial embargo of oil uh, exports to the U.S., which created oil shortages, which created... Uh, high gasoline prices, which created lines and fistfights at gasoline stations when there were shortages and people couldn't uh, fill up their tank. And it was really the first time in the post-World War II period of American prosperity where the American public, public broadly had to reckon with the idea that this uh, perpetual uh, increase in the standard of living, that this affluence, that this uh, economic comfort might not be as sustainable uh, as once thought. And so the stage was set with um, energy being a major uh, domestic and international policy issue for the U.S. to address in the mid-1970s for Knoxville to play off of that theme and galvanize interest in uh, a local project based around the idea of energy. But the idea was to engage the Carter administration to bring federal dollars because they were trying to grapple with this issue of 
the energy crisis or new ideas about energy? Carter made energy perhaps the key domestic focus of his administration, both because there was an obvious pragmatic need to do so to prevent a crisis like 1973 and 1974 from happening again, but Carter was also an intensely religious and moralistic president and had this idea that Americans had become too wasteful, uh, too self-absorbed, and had lost the ability for shared sacrifice that had brought the nation through so many crises in decades past, and so wanted to not only institute a number of practical policy measures to increase the nation's domestic supply of energy and stop being so dependent on foreign sources, but also encourage Americans to reach back to that vision of self-sacrifice, that vision of self-discipline that he believed had made the U.S. great in decades past. Every gallon of oil, each one of us saves, is a new form of production. It gives us more freedom, more confidence, that much more control of our own lives. So the solution of our energy crisis can also help us to conquer the crisis of the spirit in our country. It can rekindle our sense of unity, our confidence in the future, and give our nation and all of us individually a new sense of purpose. You know we can do it. It doesn't hurt to dream big dreams because mankind's milestone started with a dream. And Knoxville and Knoxvillians for generations to come can be better for it. Most of the planning took place under Carter, but by 1982, Ronald Reagan had supplanted Carter as the U.S. president, and Reagan brought a completely different philosophy on energy issues and how they should be addressed to the White House when he came into office. No cardigans. No cardigans, uh, no solar panels on the White House, no idea about... uh, self-sacrifice or self-discipline, what had happened is that uh, Carter had basically made this deal with the country in the, in the mid-1970s when his energy policies were taking shape. He created, uh, in 1977, the cabinet-level Department of Energy with the main goal uh, of encouraging conservation, encouraging development of alternative technologies. And what happened is that Carter had basically promised the nation, if you get back to the spirit of sacrifice, if you make these uh, tough calls in your daily life, if you change your standard of living, then we won't have these energy problems that 1973 and 1974 so viscerally brought to the forefront of public consciousness. However, in 1978 and 1979, there was a revolution in the nation of Iran where the mostly secular ruling uh, government in Iran was overthrown by uh, a more religiously oriented fundamentalist regime and that the instability in that nation caused another uh, spike in oil prices, brought back the the lines of gasoline stations in the United States, uh, and caused another round of uh, consumer disappointment and anger. Obviously, there wasn't that much of a connection between Carter's domestic policies encouraging conservation and the events across the world in Iran, but for many Americans, it seemed like this promise had failed. The Carter had told people for years that if they accepted these sacrifices and rethought their standard of living, something like this wouldn't happen again. And yet here it is a few years later, and something like this is happening again. And so Reagan came into office uh, and campaigned on this idea that this government management of the energy economy that Carter had created with the Department of Energy had failed, uh, and that the thing to be done was to unleash the private sector Uh, unshackle oil companies and coal companies and other private energy producers 
deregulate uh, oil markets and other energy markets to the maximal extent possible, remove price controls, remove any kind of rationing, remove any kind of government intervention into energy, and let the, the private sector basically unleash itself to, to solve the problem. And now I'm pleased to introduce the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Americans will be host to the world next year, and for a moment our enterprise will capture international attention. We have a chance to transform that moment into a new age of American leadership. Carter attended the fair, but Reagan was president and gave opening remarks and uh, was the official you know, U.S. government representative at the fair. And the media accounts at the time talk about Carter kind of skulking around in the shadows and trying not to be seen too much and, you know, not making much of a public appearance. And Reagan used his remarks at the fair's opening to talk about the benefits of decontrol, the benefits of deregulation, the benefits of allowing these private sector entities to be uh, unleashed to their own whims and come together with creative solutions to solve the problem without the government needing to be involved. Our country is renewing itself finding strengths we'd abandoned and direction we'd lost. As individuals and as a people, we're regaining control of our lives. Next year at the Knoxville World's Fair, we have a chance to share this new confidence with each other and the world. Energy problems and potentials will be examined and proposed at a time when energy needs preoccupy the world. Vast opportunity and almost all possibilities lie just on the other side of knowledge. Next year in the Appalachian foothills, America has the chance to lead the search in the field of energy. Let us take the chance. Let us begin together the next step toward an age of American innovation and leadership. What sort of information did visitors to the fair actually get about new technologies? There was certainly a lot on display. It's been difficult to find really substantive discussions of the fair its, its energy uh, components in the journalistic accounts of the time. There were talks by experts, by policymakers, by energy researchers. There were symposia. There were seminar discussions. There were displays at the U.S. Pavilion on uh, new experimental sources of energy and new technologies being developed. And it's difficult to find substantive records of those events because it became such a touristy, such an exciting event for the city of Knoxville and the world, and so journalistic accounts of the time focus on things like the Hungarian station at the fair, which had a giant Rubik's Cube, focused on these fun, touristy things that people were there to see, and not so much on the energy, the substantive energy issues available at the time. One way to think about it is that by the early 1980s, when the fair actually took place, this is, you know, eight or nine years after the oil crisis of 73 and 74, and the nation's uh, attention had shifted in a lot of different ways. You can think about if we started planning now, uh, here at hopefully the end stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, for some kind of international event eight, nine, ten years in the future, focusing on public health and immunology and virology and all the experimental uh, research taking place, you can imagine in eight or nine years, if there's no further pandemic and no further worsening of COVID-19, the nation's uh, attention will probably shift to any number of different possible political issues in the future. It does not stretch one's imagination to picture Energy Expo 82 as the final piece in the mosaic to focus Knoxville on its developing role as the energy capital of the world. 
the promise made by the organizers of the fair is that not only is this a logical place because of all of the energy innovation that's going on within this region, but that this would intensify and, and focus the world on the idea that East Tennessee is the place that's working on energy innovation. Was that simply fair promotion, or was there some reality to that that claim? Well, I think the the cynical view is that this was just a, re- a downtown redevelopment effort, that the fair promoters and the fair organizers didn't care about energy, that they just wanted money to clean up downtown and move uh, undesirable populations out of the area uh, and create a nice, uh, beautiful area for downtown shoppers to revisit and revitalize. But I think two things can be true at the same time, that that's how the fair began. But it's impossible to separate that from the region's very real and very deep political, cultural, economic, social relationship to energy. As you mentioned, I grew up in Knoxville, and I grew up with the sons and daughters of Tennessee Valley Authority engineers and Oak Ridge National Lab engineers. And it's just undeniable that uh, the region's energy history and the region's energy identity is is woven into basically every aspect uh, in of the fabric of daily life. We would love to be able to give you a sneak preview of what sort of shows are in store for you, but that's impossible. Many of the exhibits will revolve around ideas that have yet to make the transition from science fiction to the drawing board. One of the questions that always comes up at the fair is, if there were any major technological breakthroughs, and again, it's hard to find much evidence of that in journalistic accounts. I'm hoping that at some point, people who participated in these seminars and symposia and talks might have their personal records make their way out of basements and attics into archives so that people can uh, recreate the conversations that were going on. But the other thing that's true is that often these international expositions the idea that Knoxville's exposition became very touristy and there were a lot of pup, puff pieces written in journalistic accounts is not a new thing for these international expositions. If you look back at the history of World's Fairs and their precursors, there are a few that stand out as sites of really important technological breakthroughs. Uh, there was one in uh, the early 1850s in London. England uh, had led uh, the world with the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s and hadn't worried about uh, their former colonies over in the independent United States because it seemed to be a very backwoods, very agricultural, very non-threatening entity to England on the global stage. And in the 1850s, there was a gathering in London where Samuel Colt unveiled his Colt pistols, which were the most finely engineered and most efficient guns the world had ever seen. And it was the first time that Europeans really had to take account of Americans as a potential uh, technological rival. But when it all comes to a close, October 31 in 1982, what will it all have meant? A lot. Now you've suggested the cynical view is that this was really not so much initially about energy, but really about downtown development. How would you evaluate that project, thinking about it 40 years later? Did this project end up creating the kind of downtown or contributing to downtown development or rebuilding the city in a way that they, the promoters had hoped? I think it did uh, quite a bit. Obviously, it was incomplete. It's impossible in the post-1950s, 1960s U.S. to deny the impact of suburbanization. One of the main concerns that fair organizers had was all the uh, downtown shopping that had gone uh, west out to Westtown Mall, 
that West Town Mall was replacing uh, the stores that Knoxvillians had in decades past uh, patronized in the downtown area. The fair didn't solve that issue, but it did provide uh, a lot of funding and a lot of other benefits for the city. One thing that happened is that the interstates around Knoxville were widened to make room for all of these potential visitors to the fair, uh, which helped some of the outlying suburbs, my hometown of Farragut, develop in the ensuing decades, having easy uh, highway access. And it also brought some lasting benefits to the area. We now have World's Fair Park that downtowners and students at the university can enjoy. Uh, And so it was certainly incomplete where it didn't revitalize downtown to what it had been prior to the 1960s and 1970s, but provided a lot of lasting impact for the city in other undeniable ways. Dr. Michael Camp is an independent scholar and author of Unnatural Resources, Energy and Environmental Politics in Appalachia after the 1973 oil embargo. You've been listening to a podcast that's part of a series that looks at the history and legacy of Knoxville's 1982 World's Fair. It's a partnership between the University of Tennessee History Department, WUOT, the Knoxville History Project, the Tennessee Archive of Moving Image and Sound at the Knox County Library, and the East Tennessee Historical Society. The program is funded in part by a grant from Humanities Tennessee, an independent affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Ernie Freeberg, professor in the University of Tennessee History Department. Thanks for listening. The 1982 World's Fair. You've got to be there.